Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Excellent. Very good. So my name is Carl. I am one of the ministers on staff here uh, at the Parkway Church, and I feel like I need to clarify some of these monikers that have been tossed around this morning. I do not have a doctorate. I am not a doctor. Uh, uh, I love being called doctor. I think it's fun because it makes people think I'm super smart when I am not. However, I do have a master's degree in French horn performance, which is why Zach said music. He said doctor, music, whatever, I don't know. Music means that's where my education is. My education's in music, uh, and so you're in for a treat. Uh, I do want to begin uh, with just a quick word of prayer together. I want to ask, lead us in a little bit of prayer before we kind of dig into the text. So let's, let's do that. Father, uh, we just come to you this morning and ask uh, for you to be near. We ask for you to uh, extend your grace to us by the power of your spirit that we might have your word illuminated to our hearts this morning, that we might see what you have to say to us correctly, might understand it rightly, and thereby know you better, and as a result, worship you more rightly. And so we ask for these things, God, knowing that we all come into this room with different uh, ailments, frustrations, difficulties, struggles, fears, anxieties, hurts. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strip those things away from us this morning, that we might be tethered to your word and not to our own difficulties or circumstances, that we might be encouraged by the knowledge that we have a good God who has given us uh, his son. And through that son's life and death and resurrection, it's possible for us to have life. And so, Lord, I pray uh, for myself, even now, Lord, that you would help me to speak clearly and rightly about your word, uh, Lord, that we might all be encouraged together uh, by what you have to say to us. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so it was almost uh, a decade ago uh, that I found myself in uh, uh, a flag football tournament, which for some of you already sounds funny because you know me. For others, you're like, great, guys play flag football all the time. Let me explain. So uh, I was playing with a bunch of coworkers, and uh, one of those coworkers was Jeff Ashley, so one of our pastors and elders here on staff. He and I were working at the same place. A bunch of us had gotten together for this tournament. We're playing flag football. I'm on one team. Jeff Ashley is on the other team, okay? On this particular day, we're playing each other. Now, on kind of a superficial inspection, you would look at these two teams and say, oh, they look basically the same, right? They look kind of the same uh, as one another. You have uh, the same number of people on each team. Uh, you have, uh, if I remember, my memory serves correctly, each one of these teams had one woman on the team. And everybody on either team could kind of be divided into uh, three categories, um, either, yep, oh, here we go, right here, okay? So this is my team. This is the team that year. You'll see me on the left uh, with weird facial hair and a white uh, headband peeking out behind the shoulders of two of my teammates. That look on my face says, why am I playing football? That's what that says. Okay, so this team and the other team appear on the surface to be evenly matched. There seems to be a lot of connections, a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities. And you could divide these people literally up into three categories. Either everybody on this team or Jeff's team is somebody who played sports their whole lives, loved competition, was eager and ready to do everything necessary to secure a win. Or they were in the category of somebody who's like, yeah, you know, I used to play sports. It's fun. I enjoy hanging out with my friends. I'm totally happy to play a little football. 
And then there was a third category. And each one of the teams had one of these guys, a larger fella who is not good at sports at all, but is ready and willing to use his brute strength to help his team. Now, I will let you decide which of those categories I fell into and which of those categories Jeff Ashley fell into, okay? Now, we begin to play, and like I said, on the surface, it, it appears as though these teams are evenly matched. But it became very clear very quickly that, that was not the case. And let me explain to you how I became aware of this. So, being completely sports ignorant, being non-athletic, which some of you chuckled a minute ago already knew. You already knew that because you've heard me talk this way, you've heard the guys make jokes at my expense, you've heard me make jokes at my own expense, or perhaps you used your eyeballs and you looked at me <laughs> and you said, that guy's not athletic, and you were right, okay? And so here we are playing against one another. I don't know anything about strategy. So I told the guys that do know about strategy, I said, here's what you'll need to do. Every single play, you need to tell me exactly what to do. Give me specific instructions. Go over here, stop that guy. That's what I need to know. You can't tell me some routes or what, I don't understand that stuff. And they said, no problem. And so they did that every play. And generally, my instructions were, stand in the middle, block the other team's big guy. That was my instruction. And I can handle that, right? But then suddenly, in the middle of the game, my instructions changed dramatically. I was told, Carl, here's what we need you to do on this play. Count to five Mississippi, and then go after Jeff. Now Jeff is playing quarterback for the other team, okay? Now I've not really seen him in action, right? I haven't seen him do a lot of running. He's mostly been standing back there throwing passes and just doing his thing. He throws good passes. But I haven't seen him run. But I presume he's probably faster than me. So this seems like bad advice that I've been given, but I trust my guys. And they say, count to five Mississippi. Now we're playing by a rule that says the quarterback is not allowed to run down the sideline for a touchdown on his own, unless someone on the defending team crosses the line of scrimmage and goes after him, which is what I've been asked to do. And so here I go. They snap the ball, I count to five Mississippi, I put both hands on the big guy's shoulders and I push around him and I start after Jeff. The big guy who I've pushed out of the way goes, he's coming, Jeff. And when he says that, Jeff takes off down the sideline and makes a touchdown. He makes the touchdown before I reach the spot that he used to be standing in. <laughs> now that says to me, these teams are not evenly matched. And it became clear to them, the people on his team, it became clear to us, that team's gonna win. That team has Jeff. Jeff is significantly faster than everyone on my team and everyone on his own team. Jeff is going to make sure that they win. And sure enough, they did. Now, the reason I share this story is because there is kind of a connection to the text that we're looking at. So as Paul is walking through this idea that there are kind of two teams, one in Adam and one in Christ, he's saying, yes, there are similarities. Yes, there are parallels. Yes, there are connections. But there's one that's much greater. So let's reread the text one more time, and then let's kind of dig into it. So we're in the fifth chapter of Romans, starting in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, 
grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this passage that we're looking at this morning is Paul summarizing, crystallizing all that he's been saying for the past six or eight verses. So since verse 12, he's been making this comparison and this contrast between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ, these two teams, these two spheres of influence, these two dominions. And now he's going to kind of sum up his arguments. He's going to sum up what he's been saying for these last six or eight verses. But even in his summary, he has more to teach us. So let's look more specifically at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So what does this verse mean? It just means that Adam earns separation from God for all of those who are in Adam. Jesus earns righteousness and eternal life for all those who are in Jesus. That's what it means. That's all it is. Okay, but let's look a little bit more closely at how we get that. So the first word of this verse is the word therefore. Why does he use this word? He's saying, therefore, in light of all that I've just told you, let me now explain to you what I mean. Let me kind of crystallize this argument for you. That's what he's saying when he says therefore. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions. Some of the questions might be super obvious to us, but we still ought to ask them. So whose trespass is he speaking of, and what trespass is he speaking of? And if we look at the previous verses, if we look in 12 through 14, we see very clearly he is speaking of Adam. He's talking about Adam. What trespass is he talking about? Adam's sin in the garden. His initial trespass. And remember, when we used the word trespass in previous weeks, we defined it as being not only sin, but kind of a high-handed sin, one that's done intentionally. It says, I know the law of God. I know what God expects. I'm going to do what I want anyway which is what Adam has done. He's taken of the fruit and eaten it, even though he knew he was not supposed to. And what does this trespass lead to? Condemnation. To be condemned, to be forever, eternally separated from God. And why is this true? Why is it, as Paul says, that this is true for all men? Why is that? And the, the analogy that we've used in the last few weeks is one of an ambassador, right? So you've got an ambassador, let's say, that represents the United States. And he goes and has a meeting with a foreign president. He sits down at this meeting with the president. He's talking. And in the middle of the conversation, the ambassador steps up and just slaps him in the face. Now, is that president and all the people of his country going to just be mad at the ambassador? No. He's going to be mad at the United States. We hate the U.S. because your ambassador, this man who you sent to represent you, slapped our leader. This ambassador represented everyone in the country In the same way, Adam represents everyone who comes after him. And so what we've got here is Adam's sin, his trespass, leads to condemnation for all men. Likewise, we have to ask ourselves, whose act of righteousness are we talking about? What act of righteousness are we talking about? And again, it's clear from the previous texts, from the previous verses that we looked at, he's thinking of Christ. But the question is, what act of righteousness did Christ do? Well, we could make a case for he's talking about Christ's perfection in life, his sinless life, that he lived without sin, earning righteousness that can then be imputed to those who believe. Or he could be talking about Christ's atoning work on the cross. Or he could be talking about Christ's triumphant work in resurrection. Now, it's likely that Paul's thinking more of the atonement on the cross. But the reality is we can't separate those things. We can't pull them apart. We cannot say that I'm going to take the atonement and not talk about his life or his resurrection. Those three things are inextricably connected. Christ's life and death and resurrection are this work of righteousness 
that has been done on behalf of those who believe. And what does this act of righteousness lead to? Justification and life. Now, every time we've talked about justification, as we've looked through Romans, we've tried to come back to the same definition. And I want to come back to it again. I think it's helpful for us to consider it and try to see if we can remember it. What does justification mean? So we've defined justification as an act of God whereby he credits the unrighteous as having the status of righteous, which means the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. I'm going to read that one more time. Justification is an act of God whereby he credits the unrighteous as having the status of righteous, which means the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. So, so far we've seen that Adam's actions lead to bad stuff, Jesus' actions lead to good stuff. With me? Okay. Let's keep going. In the text here, we are looking at 18. Now we need to look at something that might confuse us, might trip us up as we read this, because we need to think about who does this bad stuff and good stuff apply to? Who's it for? Who gets the good stuff? Who gets the bad stuff? And Paul uses this phrase, all men, two times in this verse. He says, therefore, as one trespass leads to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Okay, so it seems on an initial reading, well, he's using the same language. He must be talking about the same groups of people. So if, if Adam's sin applies to everyone ever, then that, just, that must mean also Jesus' uh, righteousness counts for everyone ever. But that's, the problem with that is that's contrary to what the Scriptures teach. That cannot be the case. It seems on the surface that it might be true because of the language and the way that we think of it today. But there are tons and tons of places in the Scriptures that declare this is not true. That Christ's righteousness is not for all. Not for every single person. So let's look at a few texts that help us to see this. John chapter 3, verse 35 and 36 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 8, verse 12, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so we could go on and on. There's tons more scriptures that we could look at. But at the end of the day, the idea that everyone gets the righteousness of Christ in somehow the same way that everyone gets the condemnation that's in Adam is false. The Scriptures proclaim it. So it must mean that that all doesn't actually mean every single person, which is clearly true. That's the way language works. The idea is that this word has to be defined by its context. Superlative words like this get defined within a context. And Paul himself will use this language throughout Romans. I want to look at just a couple of places where he does this so we can get a, a, big, a better taste of this idea. Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Is he saying do what's honorable in the sight of everyone in the world? Everyone ever? No, he's talking about a particular context. 
Romans 1, verse 8, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with everyone in the entire world? No, everyone in a particular context. Romans 16, verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Their obedience is known to everyone in the world? No. Their obedience is known to those who've heard of them in a particular context. So this word all gets its context is what is going to define it. And so Paul's not making a point about numbers. He's making a point about efficacy. He's talking about who is this effective for? That's who I'm speaking of. He's saying that Christ has a pervasive, long-lasting, permanent effect on all those who are in him. And he's saying that Adam has a long-lasting, permanent effect on all those who are in him. That's what he's saying. So when he says all men and all men, he's not talking about the same groups of people. He's saying all that are in Adam and all that are in Christ. And so the question then is, okay, if he's talking about all of what, let's look at where he's getting this from, where we can see this more clearly, and it's in Paul's writing in the previous verses. If we look back at verse 12, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so Paul is saying, because of Adam's sin, we are born in iniquity. We are conceived in sin. And then we stand with him in solidarity by our own sin. His sin gets us on his team. Our sin keeps us there. Then in verse 17, just the previous verse to the one we're looking at, Paul says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so Paul's told us who these are, who the people that are in Christ are. It's those who have received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, those who have received the gift of faith. That's who he's speaking of. So lastly, here in verse 18, Paul says that Christ's act of righteousness leads to justification and life. Why does he add and life? Why didn't he just say it leads to justification? Well, it's not two different things. They go together. Again, we're talking about Adam's actions lead to bad stuff. Jesus' actions lead to good stuff. Justification and life go together. Life comes out of having been justified. He's speaking of eternal life. And so these two things go together. They're not two separate categories, but rather life comes with it. Life comes with justification. It's like buying a car. Right? If you go down to buy a car and you say, uh, I want to get leather seats. They're like, oh, good. That's a good thing you told us that because we're going to put that nasty cloth stuff in there. Okay, but you don't have to say, oh, I would also love four tires. You don't have to say that. It comes with it. That's part of the deal. Justification comes with eternal life. But he's also wanting to make the contrast between eternal death, which we'll see more as we get into verses 20 and 21. So he's making a contrast between life and death, but he's also saying eternal life emanates from being justified. So verse 18, Adam earns separation from God. Jesus earns righteousness and life for those who are in him. This is what 18 means. Let's keep going. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, there are a lot of similarities here between the verse we just finished with, 18, and 19. In fact, we could read 19 and be like, oh yeah, I get it. He's saying the exact same thing again, He's using different words, whatever. Let's keep going. And that is, to an extent, to, in a sense, that is true. He is saying the same thing again, but what's happening is Paul is taking this argument that he's making. 
that he's just finished explaining, and he's turning it so that we can look at it from a different angle. He's saying there's more to see here. There's more to understand here. He's not just going to give us this one angle. He's going to look at it from another angle. He's going to expound on the argument that he's making. And so Paul's also, he's taking uh, the same ideas from previous verses. So if we look in verse 12, Paul uses the language of all sinned, and he's pulling that into verse 18 where he says all men. And then when we look in verse 15, he talks about the many, and he pulls that language now into verse 19 where he says the many were made sinners and the many will be made righteous. And again, when he uses the same language, it's like 18. He's talking about the many who are in Adam and the many who are in Christ. Now, we need to look also at one man's obedience versus one man's disobedience. And so when we look at 18 verses 19, what we need to see is that Paul is speaking in 18 of the results, God's response to the action. God's response to Adam's action is condemnation. God's response to Christ's action is to be justified, to give justification and life. That's God's response. But here in 19, the language changes, and now he's talking about the identity of the person. He's talking about what do they become? What does someone become because of these actions? Not how does God respond, what does a person become? And he says, because of the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Because of one man's obedience, many were made, will be made righteous. So in a sense, what's happening is, Paul is saying in verse 18, here's the teams. And in verse 19, he's saying, here's who's on the teams. That's what he's saying. And so there's a good news for us in that even though every one of us is born into Adam, every single person who's ever been born with the exception of Christ is born into Adam, born into this team, and has no hope of being moved apart from a work of God, that there is indeed hope. There is a possibility of being traded from this team to this one. There's the opportunity available to be out of Adam into Christ, out of death into life, out of darkness and into the light. It's like being an NBA player. And you say to yourself, Carl, didn't you just tell us you don't know anything about sports? Yes. Are you about to give us a sports analogy? Yes, because I have friends who know lots of sports stuff. There's a man named Robert Horry. Robert Horry was an NBA player from 1992 to 2008, and he won seven NBA championships. That's a lot. So how do you know that's a lot, Carl? Because I asked my friends. Okay? They told me that's a lot. Michael Jordan has six, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think I am because I Googled it, okay? But this guy has seven. Is Robert Horry a household name? No. Do people sit around and do kids play basketball on the playground and say, I want to be like Robert Horry? No, they say, I want to be like Mike or I want to be like LeBron or I want to be like Troy Aikman. I'm just kidding. I know he's a baseball player. <laughs> but this guy, Robert Horry, played for the Houston Rockets and won two championships. Then he got traded to the LA Lakers who were on the rise and won three more championships. Then he got traded to the San Antonio Spurs while they were on the rise and won two more championships. Those championships weren't won because of Robert Horry. Now he may have contributed. I'm sure he was a good player. You can't be a bad player and make it in the NBA. I don't think. 
I certainly can't make it in the NBA. But the idea was he was put onto a winning team. He won those championships because he was transferred. He was, he was traded to the team that was already on the way to winning. Let's keep going. Verses 20 and 21. I want us to look at them together for just a second, and then I want to split them apart and talk about them separately. So let's read 20 and 21 together. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so verse 20 by itself. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This verse just means this. The law was given to make the problem of sin more visible. But God's grace to those who are in Christ is always more powerful than their sin. That's what he's saying. The law was given to make sin more visible, but God's grace to those who are in Christ will always be more powerful than their sin. Okay? But let's look at a little bit more detail here. So Paul begins by talking about the law. What law is he talking about? The Mosaic law, the law that was given to Moses, the law that was given to the, the nation of Israel. And it was given for a purpose, but Paul is saying to us that the purpose was not to fix the problem of Adam, was not to make the people better. It was to make the problem worse. It was to increase the visibility. It was to increase the contrast. It was to make sin more visible to the sinner that they might know they cannot measure up, that they might know their great need for a Savior. That's the purpose of the law. And here's the thing, church, that's true for us today. Now, we're not under the Mosaic law. Jesus came and fulfilled that law. So we are not beholden to it like the Israelites were. But we still have the same issue. We still have the same problem. And that problem is that God has expectations for our lives. He has things he wants us to do. He has things he wants us to not do. And he's given that to us in his word. And we are absolutely incapable of obeying him. We are incapable of living to the standard that he has set. And the standard is perfection. The standard is righteousness, which is why we need a savior, which is why there is this other team, which is why there is the possibility of being traded from this one to this one. And so the weight of sin increased. It increased in number, numerical value, certainly, but that's not Paul's point. It increased in weight. It increased in visibility. It increased in contrast. And this coincides with verse 13 that Zach talked about, where, where Paul says that uh, sin was indeed in the world before the law, but there is no, there's, that sin is not counted where there is no law. Same idea as verse 13 is being talked about here, which is, that the sin comes in and now there's a record. The sin comes in and now we know clearly what the expectation is. The, sin come, the, the law comes in and makes sin more visible. And so Paul says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So where exactly did sin increase? In Israel. They're the ones that have been given the law. It increased to the point that they had to, be, they had to sit under God's judgment and to be exiled and taken into captivity. And Paul says sin increased. He doesn't say sins. Right? So he's not talking about a numerical thing. So Paul's not talking about numbers. He's not talking about the number of people in this camp, the number of people in this camp, and he's certainly not talking about the number of sins. He's talking about what sin is doing, how it pervades the culture, how it pervades the human heart. 
and with a record of what God expects, with the giving of the law, that sin and its visibility increases. But then he says, grace abounded all the more. What does abounded all the more mean? It literally means super abounded, right? That's what it means, right? But it's this idea that as that sin increases, as the sin against God goes up, as the visibility and the weight and the burden and the the slavery to sin goes up, God's grace goes up more. God's grace is greater than the sin. Now, when I was 15 years old, I started washing dishes at a really fine establishment, a really nice restaurant. This restaurant was well-known for its food, well-known for its uh, uh, economy, good food for a good price, okay? Little Caesar's Pizza. (laughs) Now, I have a million stories that I could share with you about Little Caesar's Pizza, all of them hilarious, but not right now. The point right now is for you to know and remember, if you can, that there was a kind of a gimmick that Little Caesars had back in the 80s, kind of floating into the 90s. Pizza, pizza, right? You buy a pizza, you get a free pizza. I'm sorry, you get a free pizza, right? You don't actually get a free pizza. They work the cost of the second pizza into the... Right, anyway, we're not going to talk <laughs> economics, okay? And so you couldn't get an odd number of pizzas at Little Caesars. And in the 80s, they had a particular uh, television commercial that I have never forgotten. I thought it was hilarious at the time. I still think it's funny today. And I think it has connection to what we're talking about now. So here we go. Little Caesars commercial. Boy Scout troop leader, six or eight of his Boy Scouts come into a Little Caesars. They've got their shirts on and their scarves and their badges and their pins and their sash and all the stuff. And the Scout leader walks up to the counter, pulls out his wallet and says, we would like to get one large pepperoni pizza, please. And the kid behind the counter goes, well, then you'll get two large pepperoni pizzas. And the scout leader, wanting to instill good character in his scouts, looks at the scouts and says, well, then we'll pay for two pizzas. And the guy behind the counter says, well, then you'll get four pizzas. And the scout leader says, well, then we'll pay for four pizzas. Well, then you'll get eight pizzas. <laughs> and then they cut, and they tell you about how fresh their ingredients are and what kind of cheese they use and whatever. And I do know, you can ask me. But they cut back. And the scout leader says, well, then we'll pay for 64,708 pizzas or whatever the number is. And the idea here is no matter how many pizzas he ordered, he was going to get more, right? And so the idea here is that as sin increases, God's grace increases. And church, this is good news. For you who are in Christ, for you who have put your hope and faith in what Christ has done through a perfect life and an atoning death and a beautiful resurrection... You cannot out-sin God's grace. You can't do it. You cannot sin so much that he cannot rescue you. You cannot do so much that God says, I've never seen that before. You can't do that. That is not the way God's grace works. This is good news. And for you who are not in Christ, if you do not know the joy of loving and knowing and following and worshiping this God, this kind of grace is available. You have to repent. You have to trust in the Lord. This is available to you. So Paul is continuing to compare the two camps, Adam and Christ. And last, like last week, we talked about the contrast versus the comparison. Right now he's demonstrating how there is indeed a similarity, but there is a great disparity. These are not equal teams. 
One is far greater. One is infinitely better than the other. To be on Christ's team is a better thing. Now, when this idea of grace abounding all the more, that brings in the question, okay, well, if I want to see more of God's grace, shouldn't I then just sin more so that will make His grace more? And that's the very question Paul's going to ask in the next chapter. When we look at this next week, Paul is going to ask that question and he's going to answer that question. So let's keep going. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what this verse means. For those who are in Adam, things are ultimately bad. For those who are in Christ, things are ultimately good. That's all he's saying. If you are in Adam, ultimately things will go bad for you. If you are in Christ, ultimately things will go good for you. That's all Paul is saying. But let's get closer. As he's wrapping up his thoughts, as he's kind of crystallizing his arguments here at the end of chapter 5, he's talking about these two dominions, these two spheres of control, these two spheres of authority, these two heads of these teams, so to speak. And in Adam, sin is in control. Death reigns. When, when Adam sinned in the garden and, de- and, and sin enters the world, death comes with it. Death is the ultimate expression of sin. And for those who are in Adam, that's their master. Sin is their master. Death reigns. This is who they're enslaved to. But something greater has broken into the world. Christ has come. Christ has come, and for those who are in Christ righteousness reigns. For those who are in Christ, life abounds. And this is what Paul is telling us. He's saying, in Adam, there is nothing for you but condemnation, separation, eternal death. In Christ, there's nothing but good for you. Life, righteousness, having been counted as perfect and spotless before the Father. Eternal life. This is good news. And so he's saying, everyone is either under condemnation or they're under grace. Each of these sides has a representative, but they are similar and they are not equal. Christ is better. And so Adam's team kind of encompasses everyone. We're all born in iniquity. We're all conceived in sin. But we are by nature in Adam. And in Christ, the elect are transferred from this life to this one. And in this life, we stand in solidarity with Adam by sinning right alongside him. Our actions participate in what we get to be on this team. But on this team, there is no action. There is nothing we can do to be a part of this. Yes, we have to believe. Yes, we have to repent. But those things are given to us by God. Faith is a gift. Repentance is an outworking of that faith. Everything that needs to be done to be on this team is done by God. God alone can rescue, and He rescues through Christ. And so those who are traded from one team to the other have nothing to contribute but the sin that makes it necessary. This is like that flag football game that we talked about at the beginning. Right? So I was on the losing team. I think we all got that, right? And while Jeff ran down that sideline to score, which he did many times, 
And does Jeff love the fact that he is the analogy for Christ in this? Yes, he does. <laughs> did he pay me to use this analogy? No, he did not. But Jeff had other people on his team, and they did some stuff. But at the end of the day, him running on the sideline and scoring over and over again was how they won. I stood and watched him. His team stood and watched him. If I had been on his team, if I had been traded somehow to Jeff's team, my contribution to that game would have been exactly the same. Nothing. But I would have gotten to celebrate. I would have gotten to share in the win that Jeff purchased for that team. Similarly, Christ alone does what's necessary to come from Adam to Christ, to come from death to life, to come from darkness to light. Only Jesus can do this. Believe and repent. This is what you're called to. And so church, if you love Jesus and you struggle and you think somehow I've outdone it, somehow I've gone too far, somehow I'm now under God's wrath, God's mad at me. Believer, that's not true. Because in Christ, he only sees Christ. He only sees perfection. He only sees righteousness because that's been given to you in Christ. And church, if you do not know him, there is hope. There is grace available to you. You might ask that he would give you the gift of faith is what I would call for you to do. Today, in a minute, when we take communion together, I'm going to ask you to pray. And when we do, I would encourage you to ask the Lord, change me. Give me a heart that loves you. Give me a heart that wants to obey you. Help me repent. Help me believe. I don't want to be over here. I want to be there, and I don't know how to do it. The reason you don't know how is because you cannot. It is a work of God. Only Christ can purchase for us the ability to come from Adam to Christ. Only him. And praise his name. Let's pray while the men come forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather this morning. We thank you that, that you love us. You love us so much that you gave to us your son. That in Christ, we can be counted as righteous. We can be declared innocent, blameless, spotless, perfect. What a good gift this is. And so, Lord, for those of us who have received that gift, Lord, I pray that you will help us to rest in it today. That we would not grow weary, but that we would find joy in our salvation. Lord, we ask for you to help us to trust in you. Give us an abundance of faith today. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your son. Lord, we're thankful that we live in a place where we can gather like this without fear of persecution. What a gift that is. And I thank you for these men and women and children who've gathered here today. I thank you for bringing them. Lord, I pray that as we leave here in a few minutes, Lord, that we would be encouraged and reminded of the grace, the life, the righteousness that's available in Christ. We pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.